<laughs> All right. Well, obviously, with the weather as bad as it is, we uh, only have a handful. Of, well, we don't even have a handful of people here at our in our uh, auditorium, but we have a few of us, and uh, so. We're going to jump right into our lesson tonight, and uh, we'll be in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter number 2, and before we begin, let's open with the word of prayer, and we'll ask for the Lord's blessing as we study this tonight. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity that you give us, even in the middle of uh, times where the, the weather is not good and we're not able to travel, that you have placed us in a time in history where we have the ability and the uh, technology to be able to take and still teach your word, be able to get it out. And Lord, we are grateful for that tonight. We thank you for the privilege of holding in our hands your book and to know that it is your word in its entirety. Every word in it is what you have given to us to have from you. And Lord, we rejoice in that, that we can hold it and study it and learn from it. And then, Lord, we're grateful tonight also for giving us the Holy Spirit to guide us and to illuminate truth and to be able to help us to understand it uh, clearly and uh, the joy, the comfort that He brings to us. And so, Father, we're very grateful tonight. We pray that You would bless the time that we spend around Your Word, guide and direct us, and help us to have our hearts and our minds, our thoughts, uh, be able to understand with uh, clarity uh, the things that You would have for us tonight from Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, we have begun studying uh, the seven letters to the seven churches that were listed. Uh, we find those in Revelation chapter 2 and in Revelation chapter 3. These are seven literal churches that were in existence at that time. It's interesting to note that as God gives these to John, he writes the letters to the angels of the churches. And so we talked a little bit last week uh, about that and how the, the, um, the word angel that is used here is used uh, not as a heavenly messenger, but in a more generic sense of uh, the usage that it would have in the terms that it is uh, God's messenger or God's uh, man that is used to bring his word to his people. And so we look at the uh, angel of these churches as being the overseers or the bishops or the pastors of these churches. And uh, these are the, the men that uh, the letters are written to. We gave a few reasons for that last week. We're not going to reteach all of that. And if you did not, uh, were not able to tune in last week or get that, you can go back and listen to it. But one of the, one of the big reasons we believe this to be true is that uh, God is writing uh, through John uh, corrective measures. Uh, to the angels of the church. And in fact, the angels uh, were being told that there were some things that were good, but that God had somewhat against them. Again, if these were heavenly beings, heavenly angels, they would be uh, without sin, without error. And uh, so again, we're dealing here with human folks. We're dealing with uh, men that are used to be the messengers of God. And so God writes to these churches. John pins them. And uh, it's interesting that up until uh, just the late 200s A.D., almost 300 A.D., that you could, in, I think it was the church in Sardis, if I'm not mistaken. I'll have to double-check that and get back to you. But uh, historically, uh, up until almost 300 A.D., you could actually go to the church, and I'm almost positive it was Sardis, and they still had the actual letter that John wrote to them from the book of Revelation. 
the physical copy of it, the, the actual uh, material it was written on, the letter itself there in the church. And it was just shortly after that that because of uh, frailty and usage it disappeared and uh, no longer is in existence. But, uh, but it was a literal letter that uh, these things uh, were written and sent to these churches that God wanted them to know. He uh, follows a similar formula throughout all of them. And he begins by uh, telling them a little bit about who he is, uh, the attrib- some, some attribute about himself. We're going to be looking at some of those over the next uh, couple of weeks as we deal with this. But he, he addresses each church differently. Uh, he comes to them with a different uh, explanation or description or attribute of himself uh, as he comes. And each of them, I think, are applicable as to what he's dealing with with the churches. Uh, and we'll see that a little bit closer as we deal with this. Then he talk, talks about uh, the things that they're doing right. He'll also often uh, refer to uh, things that are they're doing well. Uh, there's only one church that he does not have anything good to say about. Uh, the rest of them, uh, he commends them for the things that they are doing well. And then uh, he also will tell them uh, what they're doing wrong, uh, what's, what's not doing well, and what he needs to correct them. And then after he's dealt with what they're doing wrong, he'll instruct them on what they need to do. He'll say, okay, because you're doing this, and I have somewhat against you about this, uh, here's what you need to do. I want you to do this, and this will fix the problem. And then he'll give some kind of a challenge or a charge to the church. He'll say, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. And he'll give a final charge in the letter to uh, the churches. He follows the same pattern, the same formula, through each of these churches. And you'll see a very similar pattern of that. We talked a little bit about uh, the church at Ephesus. If you'll take time to look with me in chapter number 2, we find that the church at Ephesus is dealt with from verse number 1 uh, all the way down through verse number 7. And uh, the uh, benefits that he, or the things that he uh, admired or complimented them on was the fact that he understood their works and their labor, their patience. Uh, this was during a time of uh, the early church. Uh, so uh, there was a great evangelism going on. There was uh, great fervency among God's people, even in the midst of trials and persecution. Uh, the Bible says that they've, they tried uh, men that claimed to be apostles, and they were not, and found them to be false. And they were very careful uh, about doctrinal purity. They were very careful about false teachers. Uh, by the way, we've studied this in the past, but uh, what makes a false teacher or a false prophet a false teacher or a false prophet is if they tell us anything other than what the Bible says. Uh, if they tell us something that doesn't come true or doesn't work out right, uh, then they are considered to be a false prophet uh, or a false apostle. Or In the day that we live, we would look at somebody and say, if you teach something contrary to the Word of God or in addition to that the Bible doesn't teach, uh, then we, we would look at them and say they're a false teacher. And you say, boy, that's awful harsh to look at men that stand in pulpits and call them a false teacher. And the truth is, the Bible is very clear that these are uh, men that God considers to be false teachers, not Brother Greg or Keith Ice Baptist Church. And one of the great uh, uh, challenges in our churches is that we be biblical. I'm not saying that we don't make mistakes, because there will come times that maybe we misunderstand or we teach something in error, but it ought not to be because we are trying to teach something extra-biblical. Uh, it ought always to be our heart's desire to come back to Scripture and see what the Bible is teaching. And so these men, the, the folks in Ephesus, were, were encouraged by this. God was commending them for their ability to, to try these things and to check them against uh, the truth that they had in their hands 
and to find out that these men were not what they claimed to be. Uh, he talks about the fact that they uh, were uh, had born and had patience, the idea that there was um, steadfastness in, in uh, uh, the ability to be able to be uh, faithful even through uh, the persecution, that they had not fainted. And then he also commends them. I mean, he made this statement. He says that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And uh, last week we talked a little bit about this, and I left you uh, with uh, kind of a homework assignment. If you were here Sunday, you heard us give pretty much the, the uh, information on the Nicolaitans. I'm going to briefly go over that again tonight with you because uh, there may have been some that weren't here Sunday. Um, but the, uh, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans were a group of people that were following some of the teachings and philosophy of a deacon by the name of Nicholas of Antioch. And um, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me. Do I have that passage handy here? I don't even know if I have that handy or not. Um, I think it's, uh, let's go to Acts chapter 6, I believe is where it is. And let's, uh, I think I've got it written down here anyway. But I, think, I believe it's Acts chapter 6, and let's take a quick look there. And uh, if not, we'll move on uh, to it. Uh, let's go down to verse number 5. Acts chapter number 6, verse number 5. And uh, let's back up to verse 3 so we understand what's going on. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And so the apostles were saying, uh, we're busy trying to wait on tables and take care of the widows and the orphans, and we don't have time to give ourselves to the ministry of prayer and to the Word and to doctrine. And so they said, we need to have some help. And so they decided to uh, do what we call today deacons. And uh, they found some men. There were several uh, requirements. They had to have an, uh, an honest report about them. They had to have uh, uh, the filling of the Holy Ghost upon them. Uh, they had to have wisdom. And these were the requirements of the early uh, deacons that were uh, appointed at this point in time. And uh, they say in verse 4, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip uh, of Prochorus, and Nicanor of Timon, and Parmenas, uh, and Nicholas. Notice this about Nicholas, though. Nicholas, it says, a proselyte of Antioch. That's interesting because nothing else is said of these men uh, other than Nicholas. Nicholas, it's very important that they point out that he was a proselyte, uh, of Antioch. A proselyte meant that he changed religions. Um, Antioch was uh, a large city. Uh, it was the place where Aquila and Priscilla were based. If you remember a little bit about them from the book of Acts, they were those that were so dedicated to the care of the apostles. Uh, Paul spent more time in the city, uh, I'm sorry, I said Ephesus, I meant Antioch. Uh, God spent more time uh, in Antioch, uh, I'm sorry, in Ephesus. I'm sorry. I'm getting confused here. Give me just a moment here. <laughs> the Apostle Paul spent more time in Ephesus. It's one of those times where I, one time I was preaching, and I was preaching on uh, Nicodemus, and the entire message I used the name Zacchaeus because I just got tongue-tied up here doing this. So forgive me on this. All right, he was a proselyte of Antioch, but he was a deacon in Ephesus. And so, again, understand this, that uh, Paul spent a lot of time here at this place, uh, called Ephesus, uh, and uh, Antioch was uh, one of those places uh, where uh, uh, where Nicholas was from, uh, was one of those places that was steeped 
in uh, satanic worship, the occult. Um, and uh, am I? I said at Antioch again, didn't I? Did I say Antioch again? Brother Harold's here. You got to keep me right on this. All right. I'm going to end up saying the wrong one, I'm sure, each time. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. And, uh, yeah, verse number 5. Acts chapter. Let's pray and start over again tonight. I tell you, not having anybody here has really been a, uh, help, hurt me, okay? All right, verse number 5 of chapter 6 of the book of Acts. He is a proselyte of Antioch, okay? So understand that when he was a proselyte, he had changed from the pagan philosophy of the city of Antioch. Uh, they worshipped the goddess Diana there. Uh, there was a lot of the occultish practices there. And he, he converted from the, uh, the idolatrous religions to Judaism. Now, Judaism was not necessarily Christianity. It just meant that he began to follow after what the Jews believed. Uh, from there, and again, the early church fathers wrote quite a bit about him uh, uh, regarding this, that he then transferred or, or converted from Judaism to Christianity. And so again, we have uh, these men, and, and from all outward appearances, he seemed to be one that uh, uh, was full of the Holy Ghost. He seemed to be one that was a man of an honest report and a man who had wisdom. And so they elected him to be a deacon. The problem was, as he went through being a deacon, he began to teach things that were contrary to Scripture. And so he begins to teach uh, the idea that there could be a union or a merging of occult practices with Christianity. The, the idea of bringing the idolatrous worship and some of the uh, practices that were involved in that, some of it was immorality. Uh, that took place in the worship of the goddess Diana. And so he would say, it's, it's okay, we can, we can bring all of this together and make it all happen. And, um, and this became known as uh, the deeds or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It had found its way into the church at Ephesus or into the city of Ephesus. And the Bible says here, as God is writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, this is a good thing. Because he says, you do not tolerate or you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You don't believe that the church uh, can have worldliness brought into it, that the church can have idolatry brought into it. And, by the way, we need to have a revival of that in the day we live, uh, of, of churches that will stand up and say, we're not going to uh, allow us to merge the world in. I was talking just even uh, recently with somebody uh, uh, regarding this issue. And uh, how often we bring things from the world into the church house, things that Satan has used for so many years uh, to do his work, and we bring them into the church house, and we say we're going to merge the two together. And so this is what the works or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was. It started with Nicholas in Antioch. I did get the city right that time. And uh, it infiltrated some people. They began to be followers of him and had found its way to the church at Ephesus and Ephesus was the one who said, we hate those deeds, we hate those works. Okay, I hope I was able to, by the end, clear that up. I got twisted and tongue-tied there for a minute, and I apologize for that. So that's who the Nicolaitans are. Um, uh, the, um, the introduction that God gives to the church at Ephesus, if you will look with me in verse number 1, 
I want to take just a brief look at this because I want to look at this in each of the churches. Under the angel of the church at Ephesus write these things, and here's God's description of Himself to the church at Ephesus. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. We found last week in chapter 1 that God said the seven stars were the seven angels of the churches. And so we understand what the seven stars are here. And uh, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. We also found last week in chapter 1 that God said that the seven golden candlesticks were the seven churches. Now, what is he saying by this, uh, this description? When we talk about this, um, this introductory remark he gives to the church, this explanation of who it is that's writing to them, he's, he's getting across the idea that he is the one that is the head of that church. He's, uh, the Bible teaches very clearly, and uh, Paul wrote about this, uh, when the Bible says that he is the head of the body, he's the head of the church, uh, when he makes a statement such as this, saith he that holdeth the seven uh, stars and that walks among the seven golden stand- candlesticks, he's saying, I am the one that is the head of the church. I am the one that has the authority to instruct and to guide and to teach the church how it needs to go. A pastor is not the one who guides and directs the church. God does. The pastor is simply there to be the under-shepherd to help uh, take what God has given uh, in for the church and to help implement that in the church and to make sure we guard that nothing else distracts us from what God wants us to do. It's interesting that in this time, God specifically writes a letter to them. Uh, I've been to the mailbox a lot here in the past, and I've never pulled out a letter that said, Greg, here's a letter, and it's from God. He's, here's what He says the church is to do. But that's what Ephesus gets. You say, well, where do we get that today? Now that we have a complete revelation, we take this book to be what God's told us to do. And so we look at that as the instruction. He is the head of our church. Somebody says, well, who's, who's in charge of Keith the Heights Baptist Church? God is. He's the head of it. And so, again, he's laying this foundation, this authority down. And uh, so he has some, some things against them. And we talked a little bit about this, about the fact that they had left their first love. He knew their works. But he said, I want you to return to the works of your first love. He said, those works that you're doing, I want them to be done with the same zeal, the same ardency, the same fervency, the same love that you had when you originally started. And I think we can all relate to that. Sometimes in in the Christian life, we begin to lose a little bit of that that love, that charge, that that fervency, that diligence, and... uh, we need those times to be stirred up again, to return to those first love, uh, to do things out of a heart and a love for Him. And so that brings us through the, the letter that uh, he wrote to the church at Ephesus. As we get to the very end of it, he makes this statement, verse 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And... Um, Again, we talked the first week about what this word overcometh means in context with what these churches are dealing with. And we are not dealing with here people who are able to be faithful or to do works through tribulation and to earn their salvation because he's dealing here with them being able to be partakers of the tree of life which is in uh, the midst of the paradise of God. 
So he is dealing here with those that, when we talk about those that overcome it, we're dealing with those that have, by faith, put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted Him as their Savior. And John, in 1 John, if you'll remember last week when we dealt with this, John was also the one who said that that those that had been saved uh, were those that overcome, uh, that overcame the world, overcometh the world. And so, uh, again, John, the same writer, uh, refers to him in another book, uh, those that have trusted Christ as their Savior, as those that overcome. And so there's no contradiction here. There's nothing that we would look at and say, well, this is talking about being faithful to the end and living by works and making sure that you don't lose your salvation. That's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about people who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's simply saying, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And there is no conflict with that in Scripture. And you'll find as we get through each of these books and we get to that, that passage where God speaks of the overcome, those that overcome, you'll find that in each case it's dealing there with those that are saved, those that have trusted Christ as their Savior. That brings us to verse number 8 and the church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna. Let's read down uh, verse number 8. We'll go down through verse number 11. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Uh, this is uh, a church that went through an awful lot of persecution, uh, a lot of trouble, probably more so than most of the other churches that are going to be mentioned here, if not all of them. It's interesting that God commends them for a number of things. He commended them for their works. He commended them for their uh, steadfastness, their perseverance during tribulation. Um, he commended them for the fact that even though they were in poverty, they they didn't let that affect them. And God even told them that even though maybe materially they were in poverty, there was a richness there that uh, the world oftentimes doesn't understand. And He makes the statement that thou art rich. Uh, and then He uh, talks about the fact that... Uh, the uh, uh, the things that are going to be said about them, uh, the persecution that's going to come their way. In verse number 10, he says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer, things to come. Uh, behold, the devil uh, uh, shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and ye have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful, and he even makes this statement, unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now, you'll find that the church at Smyrna is the only, of, only one of the seven churches that God commends them for the things that they were doing, but He has no condemnation for what they're doing. This was a faithful church. This was a church that I'll, I'll use this phrase, and I think there's some validity to it, that were purified by persecution. We live in a day where worldliness tends to creep into the church when the church is at ease. When, when we have no battles to fight is the time that most corruption seems to creep into the church. And it seems like historically, as we look back through the history of church uh, churches and, and the persecutions they went through, that the times 
that they were most pure, that they were most ardent, that they were most steadfast, were the times that they went through some of the greatest persecutions. And, uh, you know, the Bible talks about, and I believe it was in the book of Job, that talks about the fact that when he was tried, he would come forth as gold. The Bible talks about and uses the idea of uh, a refiner's fire, the idea that uh, our works will be tested by fire. Uh, there are times that uh, the Bible talks about the refining of persecution and things that are sometimes hurtful or painful to us are the things that will oftentimes drive us to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ more so than in times of ease. We, we are, we've been given a great privilege here in the United States of America for the last over 200 years to have a pretty good amount of religious liberty. As a result of that, we have seen an un, unbelievable amount of corruption uh, sweep into our churches. Uh, we've watched the church take its ease. We've watched them uh, this, this mighty movement of, of Christians that went through the world and preached the gospel boldly and were faithful unto the point of death and suffered uh, martyrs' deaths are now brought to, uh, to a low position, not because they were overcome, but because they had ease, they had liberty, they had freedom. And Smyrna was one of these churches that suffered greatly. They had tr a tremendous amount of persecution even so much so that the Bible says that there may be some of them in verse number 10. He says, be faithful even unto death. He's talking about here the idea that there may be some of you that you may even die for your faith. He says, I want you to be faithful in that area. And uh, so we find here the uh, church at Smyrna is commended for things, but they are not con condemned for things. He doesn't have anything negative to say of this church. He does tell them to fear none of those things which they should suffer. He, he gives them a charge. He says, listen, there's going to come some more suffering. You, you've, you've done well, but there's going to come some more. He said, uh, don't fear those things. He said, I'm going to uh, give you a crown of life, be faithful unto death. And so he charges them, gives them some things to continue to work with. Now, as we get to verse number 11, it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt, notice this, of the second death. Again, another indication that the word overcometh here is dealing with those that have trusted Christ as their Savior, not dealing with men that have worked and persevered and plowed through on their own, but men that have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting as we look at verse 8, let's see the attributes or how God describes Himself in this particular church. And under the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things. Notice what he says here about himself. The first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Here he's talking to the church at Smyrna to be faithful, even if it's to the point of death. And he refers to them as, I'm the one that's risen. I'm the one that was dead and is alive forevermore. I believe he does this to give encouragement to the church, to let them know that, hey, even if it's to death, you have a great hope in front of you. You have the resurrection. And I'm the first fruits of that. I'm the one who was dead and is alive now. I'm risen. And I, de I believe He comes to them uh, as a man, uh, as a, uh, not as a man, as a God who uh, knows and understands their infirmities and the challenges that they're going through and identifies with those things. And I'm thankful the Bible tells us that we have a God who is not uh, unfamiliar with. He's not uh, a God that sits up there who's untouched with the feeling of our infirmities. He he knows that. He has uh, felt some of this sorrow. He's gone through many of the things that we've gone through. 
and, uh, and knows these things and can empathize with us. And so I think it's very interesting that to the church at Smyrna, uh, he indicates that he is the one who uh, had died and now has risen again. And then he tells them uh, to uh, be faithful even unto death. We come to verse number 12. We find here now the church at Pergamos. Church at Pergamos. And unto the angel of the church in Pergamos write these things, saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. <clears throat> and so we find here he's writing to the church at Pergamos, probably one of the most carnal churches. There's one more that I believe may be uh, a rival to the church at Pergamos here. Uh, that we'll be looking at, but one of the more uh, carnal churches that uh, that uh, John writes this letter to, God writes this letter to through John. So we go from Smyrna, who God had only good things to say about, did not have any condemnation for them, and we come now to the church at Pergamos, and God has an awful lot against them. He's got some, some, some grievous things uh, that He looks at. Let's look at verse 12 and see how He describes Himself to the church at Pergamos. I think this is interesting. To the angel of the church at Pergamos write these things, saith he, notice this, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. It's interesting. I believe here that God uh, is very clearly showing Himself to be a God of judgment. Uh, the Bible says that the Bible, the Word of God, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What are we saying? We're saying that the Bible judges us. It discerns us. It tells us when we have the things that are right in our lives and when we have the things that are wrong in our lives. It is the judgment that it gives, that it passes on the things that we do, the things that we think. And so we find that God indicates He is the one that hath a sharp sword with two edges. Uh, or one that would bring forth uh, judgment of his people. In uh, verse number 13, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Verse 13 is a very interesting uh, uh, book to me. <coughs> and, uh, oh, let's see here. Give me just for one second. Uh, I need another verse here. Oops. Let's. Um, I may have to give you that reference later. I thought I had it written down here, and I don't. 
So I'll, I'll get that for you later. But let's look at verse 13 because I think it's a very interesting verse. It uses the phrase here where Satan's seat is. And then he goes on to say at the end of that verse, he says, who was slain, it talks about Antipas, who is a faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan, notice this word, dwelleth. Uh, I was going to pull a passage from Daniel, and I, I will get the reference for you. Some of you may look it up before I get it back to you. That will be fine. But there was a time where Daniel prayed and asked God for uh, some, uh, uh, some understanding of some things. And uh, he fasted for 21 days. And finally, an angel comes to him, and he tells him, he says, I... Uh, God heard your prayer on the first day. And He said, I'm come to bring you the answer to that prayer. And He said, uh, I was sent out on the first day of your supplication. And yet it took 21 days. And He goes on to explain to Daniel. He said, I was coming to bring this message to you. He said, And He makes this statement. He said, But the prince of Persia withstood me. It's an interesting phrase. The prince of Persia withstood me. And the angel said, I had to, he makes the statement, he had to call Michael, the archangel, to come and to help him against this prince of Persia so he could continue and bring the message on to Daniel that was needing to be, to be brought. I'm not going to do a thorough study on the doctrine of angelology here, but there is a spiritual battle and spiritual warfare that does take place. And there are times that... Um, Obviously, from Scripture, we find that there are times that there are some angels that have more power or strength than others. And uh, obviously, the angel that was sent as a messenger to Daniel was not able to overcome or to prevail against the prince of Persia because he withstood him one in 20 days, and only Michael could come and help him to get through to Daniel. And uh, we're not dealing here with physical things. In the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And it's interesting that as we look at verse 13, uh, God refers to the city of Pergamos as the seat of Satan. Uh, talk about a, a city that is just overrun with uh, absolute evil. There, there's just a lot of uh, wickedness in this particular city. And uh, they're under great persecution, those that are faithful those that are true in the church at Pergamos are under great tribulation. And this is the first time in any of the churches that we've actually seen one named that was a martyr for the cause of Christ. Had already been put to death, a man by the name of Antipas, who was his faithful martyr. And he was slain where Satan dwelleth. Uh, interesting thought here. By the way, uh, let me encourage you in this or tell you, help you with something here. We believe that God is omnipresent. He can be all places, all the time, and at any given time, God can be there. But Satan is not. Satan is a created being. He's an angel. He is not the opposite of Jesus Christ. Uh, many people think, well, he's, Satan is this uh, opposite evil of Jesus Christ, and that uh, they battle and struggle. No, they don't battle and struggle. God can overcome Satan anytime He wants to just by speaking, and Satan will cease to exist. In fact, we'll find at the end of Revelation that he will overcome Satan just by the word of his mouth. And uh, we oftentimes, I think, give Satan far more credit than is due him. I think sometimes we don't give him enough credit when it comes to sometimes we think we're okay as Christians, but 
Sometimes I think we give him more credit than he's due. We don't think highly enough. Uh, we, we think that you know he's he's got so some kind of uh, equal power to really stymie or or frustrate God's work in this world. The truth is, he doesn't have any power at all to do that except what God allows him to do. And uh, it's interesting that he speaks here, though, of uh, the seat, the place where he was uh, focused at that time, being the city of Pergamos. In verse number 14, uh, God tells him, he says, I have a few things against thee, uh, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Um, let me just real briefly, I'm not going to preach my whole Sunday sermon again to you, but if you'll remember the story of Balak, who was the enemy, uh, one of the enemies, uh, king of one of the enemies of Israel in the Old Testament, he wanted to uh, overcome Israel and he needed the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. Uh, and so that God would uh, not not bless Israel and that Balak could defeat them. He was going to pay him uh, money and make him famous and you know give him power and ruling abilities. And we uh, and this is the story, the famous story of where uh, Balaam is trying to go do what he's planned on doing here, and his donkey stands in front of him and won't let him go, and finally speaks to him. And God basically told Balaam, He said, "You're not to do this." You cannot do this against my people. And um, so Balaam didn't do it. But he went back to Balak, the king, and he, he said, Look, I can't curse the nation of Israel. I'm not, I'm not, God will not allow me to do that. He said, But here's what I can do. He said, I can tell you how you can get to them anyway. And he told them to give their daughters and their sons and to intermarry. He told them to uh, infiltrate, if you will, uh, spiritually the nation of Israel to get them to follow the idols of their country, and when they did that, that God would punish Israel. And so this was the idea or the philosophy that Balaam and Balak were scheming together on. This is what they were trying to do. And then he, goes, he makes this statement in verse number uh, 14. He said that uh, Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, notice this, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Those two things were going to bring God's judgment upon the nation of Israel. By the way, as soon as he goes into verse number 15, he says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Why? Because the Nicolaitans were bringing idolatry. They were bringing uh, fornication into the church and saying, you don't need to be separate. This can all work together. We're all happy here. We're all going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And if they lived in this day, here's how they probably would have worded it. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. Have you ever heard that before? We hear that in the day and age we live, don't we? That's the mindset. That's the doctrine or the, 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 the thought that the Nicolaitans had. Let's just all get together. Let's agree on the things we can agree on and the things we need to separate on. Let's just, we're, not, we're just going to brush them away. We're not going to worry about those. And this was their doctrine. This was their idea. Pergamus was notorious for being tolerant of this, allowing it to be part of their church, allowing it to be part of their city. And 
there were a few faithful ones, but there were others in the church that certainly had uh, some fornication going on. He uses the phrase here that they were eating meat sacrificed unto idols. I'm limited on time here. We're going to be done in just a moment, but I do want to make this statement. The reference here of eating meat sacrificed unto idols was in reference to what they were holding to with their hearts as they were doing this act of, of eating the meat. Because Paul had actually dealt with this earlier, and he said, you know, I can eat meat sacrificed to idols. I have liberty because I know that that's not an idol. That's just a piece of rock over there. It's not an idol to me. And I know that there is no such thing as an idol, and who cares if the meat was sacrificed to him? In eating that meat, I'm not worshiping that idol. So that meat is okay, and, that, and Paul said that's fine. But yet John deals with it here, and God, God brings it uh, to this church and says, y'all are eating meat sacrificed to idols. Well, what was he saying there? He wasn't saying, well, you know, you're wrong, to, the meat itself is wrong. He, what he was saying was, you're eating this meat in an act of worship for that idol. You're eating this meat, understanding that I, that idol is a god. There was an idolatrous action that was taking place there, and it wasn't just an eating that was uh, the eating of the the, doc, uh, the, the meat sacrificed uh, there. It was an, it was the eating of the meat with the idea that it, it was a sacrifice to a god, and it was an act of worship uh, to that fornicate, uh, fornicating against that god. And so we see that in verse number fourteen. So. I don't want people to get confused if they read that statement here in Revelation, how that that's a wrong thing, and then they read about it when Paul speaks about it, and he says, no, you have liberty, you're okay in that area. I want you to understand why there was a distinction between the two statements. Uh, one of them was a man who knew that there was no other God but God, and that was not even an idol. These people were doing it with the understanding that this is a God of many gods. And even though I believe in the Almighty God, this is another God. And that's why it was wrong for them. Uh, and so understanding that idea. In verse 13, here's what he tells them to do and will be done. He says, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the what? With the sword of my mouth. Well, wait a minute. What was the sword of the mouth that he was speaking of here? Well, that was in verse number 12 when he said that this is the one that's coming to you and speaking to you these things. I'm the one that hath... He says, I am he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And he says, look, you either repent of this thing, you get these things cleaned up, or I'm going to come. And he says, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, will give him a white stone, and then the stone a new name, written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And again, we find a just a very uh, pagan, very uh, wicked city that this church is in. They were beginning to become tolerant, or had been tolerant at least for some period of time, of the worldliness of that city, the paganness of that city, the, the seed of Satan, to begin to infiltrate the church and be a part of the church. And again, one thing you'll find that is a theme throughout all of these uh, letters that we'll see to the churches is... God consistently encourages, instructs, guides, reproves over the issue of purity in the church. Not only doctrinal purity, but even purity of uh, fornication, purity of worldliness and the things of this world. 
to have that separation from it, not to include it, not to come together and say we can have part of it. And we're living in times where uh, a lot of that is taking place. And a lot of churches are bringing the world in and saying, let's all just get along together. Let's agree on what we can agree on. And uh, I've heard men that uh, said, you know, it's okay for uh, me to go and be a part and join hand in hand with this group over here who is not doctrinally sound because there's a few doctrines we can't agree on. And I'll tell you this, when, when there are issues of doctrine at stake, we have to be divisive. We don't have to be mean. I'm not saying we have to be mean. But we must be divisive. Doctrine is a, is a very separating issue. Uh, it's a very narrow issue. This book is very narrow. And uh, you say, well, uh, boy, I just don't understand why you guys can't fellowship with it doesn't mean that we don't think those are good people in, 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 as far as human beings are concerned. They don't treat people nice or that they're, we, we think they're good people. The problem is we can't associate with them uh, as far as ecclesiastically with the things of Scripture. There has to be that division. We cannot come and join hand in hand with something that is contrary to this book. Uh, this is our sole authority. And so you'll find it through all the letters. God is over and over and over again correcting these angels of the churches, saying, you're letting this come in. Repent of it. Get it out. Get it away from there. Let's stay, let's stay true. Let's stay right. Let's stay uh, strong on these things and steadfast on these things. And we're in need today. We are in need today of more churches to stand up and say, you know what? We've slipped. We've let some things go here. And we need to draw those back in and say we want to be firm. We want to be right on Scripture. And the sad thing is, and I've had some sorrow even in the last few few weeks and months of my life, as I've heard of more than even one, uh, but I've heard of some churches that I respect, men of God that I've respected, and um, churches that I've looked up to over the years and thought these are men that have stayed by the stuff. These are men that have held the, the, the banner of the cross high and have said we're going to be steadfast. And I've watched in recent weeks and months, as even a few of them now, have begun to bring things in and to compromise on some things in the church. And it's heartbreaking. And I hope that we are watchful of these things, that we're careful of these things. Somebody said this one time. They said, a smart man will learn from their mistakes, but a wise man will learn from others' mistakes. And I hope we're a wise church. I hope we can come and look at these churches and say, I want, to, I want to learn from what they had done or not done. And let's learn from them so we don't make the same mistakes. And I hope that will be a help to us tonight. Let's bow our heads in prayer. We'll be dismissed. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. Guide and direct us as we study its pages. May you help us along the way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.